Welcome to the Interop. Today, my guest is Anthony. He's a core contributor at Zion. They're a generalized abstraction layer one. In today's conversation, we'll discuss Zion's origin story and why they burnt a Banksy. We'll talk about barriers to crypto adoption and how their meta accounts is making it easier for new users to onboard. We'll discuss how Zion enables signature abstraction and fee grants for applications. We'll talk about their unique approach to offsetting inflation and why they're so bullish on the Cosmos stack. I'm also dying to find out why he thinks no one gives a shit about crypto. Before we get started, make sure to subscribe to get notified when new episodes drop every week. Remember, none of what we discuss here on The Interop is investment advice. And if you enjoy this content, please consider sticking with us. We're validating on Evmos, Quicksilver, Osmosis, and Juno. Just look for Interop in the active set. My guest, Anthony, is coming up right here on The Interop. I'm here with Anthony, core contributor at Zion. Hey, Anthony, thanks for joining me. What's going on, Seb? How you doing? Good, yeah, first podcast of the year. Thanks for coming nice. through on this. Of um, course, very short notice too. You're like, hey, you wanna do this tomorrow? I'm like, honestly, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually how things happen. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll wake up on Wednesday and be like, I gotta do a podcast tomorrow on Thursday, because uh, I usually release by the end of the week, and, uh, and then I'll just reach out to a bunch of people and. You know, it always works out, and it's been it working out does. this way for years. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and why stop it if it's if it's working? Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I also host this other this other podcast called Epicenter. We've been doing it for ten years, and like for the last ten years, we were just like constantly trying to keep up. And like, yeah. you know, we'll get three or four weeks ahead, and we're like, oh, we're good. We're like three or four weeks ahead, and then and then something happens. And then you wake and up on like, a Tuesday, and like, I got a post. It, <laughs> exactly and there's nothing and then you just like start calling other friends but anyways uh that's not what we're here to talk about um so we are here to discuss burnt uh zion which um you know was kind of off my radar like i, I hadn't really heard of this project until uh Zdedex from stake lab mentioned it and put us in touch and, and i was like what is this like what's this project with like 170,000 followers on Twitter and like just as many people on Discord that I, I've never heard of and started looking into it. And um, and so, yeah, I wanted to kind of deep dive uh, here today and understand what it is you're building. But before that, I'd like to talk a little bit about the origin story. Um, yep. Why did you burn a Banksy? <laughs> It's a good origin story though, right? <laughs> um, so yeah. back, okay, so this is, this is almost like three years ago now. We, you know, as, as you mentioned, right, we bought a bank CR piece, for those who don't know, we bought a bank CR piece for $90,000 and we lit it on fire and we sold it for $400,000 as an NFT on OpenSea. Um, the reason we did this, right, and this is like, this is back in the day, right? There was, no one was, the only real NFTs like CryptoKitties and CryptoPunks. That was kind of it. Um, this is before Beeple, before really like a lot of things. Um, but I love them. I, I love my crypto kitties. Um, you know, and uh, I think as it kind of came to the vision of NFTs, I think we definitely saw it very early on, which was, you know, this digital ownership of digital art, which could never really be done before on like the cesspool that is the internet. Um, you know, so, but I was always getting shit for it. I hope I can curse on this podcast. Um, I was getting a lot of shit for it. it was just like, you know, this isn't real art. It's still what you hear today, but it's like, this isn't real art. Um, you know, if it's not on my wall, if I can't touch it, if I can't see it, you know, where's the value in it? So I'm like, okay, 
you know, let me take something that has value, sold at a Sotheby's auction, right? People know the word Banksy. And, you know, even the, even the art piece called Morons was like making fun of Sotheby's auctions and people buying art. So I said, let's light it on fire, right? Obviously, you got to do something cool. Um, and see if the value holds um, if we sell it as an NFT. And like from my perspective, we didn't even think we'd make any money on this. Like we thought $10,000, like we bought it for 90. We were thinking like $10,000 was like what we were going to get for this just because that was the price of nfts at that point like the highest nft ever sold was i think it was like a hundred thousand dollars which is unheard of um and it worked right i mean i think a lot of us was just trying to you know and you'll kind of see this as a consistent theme which is taking this bridge between retail and crypto right and saying we know this works in crypto because we've seen it in this micro environment but you know and i like to piss people off too it's, it's pretty fun um, so I, I like to do these kind of stunts in these big ways to make these kind of points known. Um, so we burned it to prove a point and we proved that point. Yeah. And I mean, this was like during, you know, NFT summer, like I guess before. In 20 before, before. Okay. This was before. And so then, um, you guys built this NFT platform on Solana, yep. uh, like building some of the early NFT standards there. What? Uh, what came of that? Like, what, what did you yeah. achieve there and kind of what came of that project? Yeah, and I think we'll get into this more when we start talking about Zion, but a lot of the logic was, it was miserable for us to do the NFT, right? Like, we had to, you know, I, and I've been in crypto for, for quite some time, and it's three of us, two of them were from Injective, and none of us really knew how to mint an NFT. Uh, it was just not something that we really did. Um, you know, and so we had to work with someone else who helped us mint an NFT, and it was, you know, this this whole promise of, you know, let's let's democratize ownership but if not everyone can access it then is it really kind of democratizing ownership right and we wanted it to be like you know hey everyone can be an artist everyone can do this we can be discovered globally and, and really kind of fulfill those promises of crypto but what we kind of saw was this infrastructure that was slow expensive really hard to operate in and you know we wanted at that point to make a very specific version of it right which was the marketplace, right? Decentralized marketplace. People couldn't get front run. It was cheaper, right? It was Solana at the time. It was faster um, as one of our bids kind of effectively got front run um, on the Banksy auction. You know, and I, and I think as we kind of migrated from there and we built some of the early standards there, like the first collection standard, et cetera, um, you know, we still were working with people like Afrojack and some pretty big names of trying to get a lot of NFTs on on the platform. But the process of doing so is still you have to go to Coinbase, you have to get a phantom wallet. You know, I'm, I'm sure I don't have to really tell you why crypto experience is just so miserable, right? And we'll, of course, get into that because that's effectively what we needed to solve at Zion, right? Um, and the journey to Zion started, I would say, I think it was June 2022 um, was really when we first really broke ground with the SDK, right? And we said, we need to hit this from the ground level. You know, as I mentioned, like no one gives a shit about crypto, right? And I think we can kind of go into this a lot more, but we really wanted to build this blockchain for consumer applications with the the underlying thesis that no one should care about crypto, and but we still need to provide the benefits that crypto promises. I'd like to maybe dig it was into a lot there. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, but like. <laughs> You said that like no, you think that nobody gives a shit about crypto, and, yeah. and to some extent, I agree. I, I think uh, nobody should give a shit about crypto infrastructure in the same way that nobody should give a shit about you know AWS or exactly. any other sort of like technology unless they're building on it. Uh, but 
but it seems that a lot of people do care about cryptocurrencies and and do hold cryptocurrencies right i think there was uh i, I saw something recently that says that like something like half a billion or close to half a billion people hold crypto in one way or another yeah and you know when we say that we're still early i think that that's the best indicator of yeah. how early we are because that's about how many people were on the internet in like the late 90s uh around the world mm -hmm. and and things sort of picked up from there and it wasn't actually until like the iphone uh that we had sort of like half of the world's population on the internet yeah. and that was 10 years later so or yeah but i mean i do have an issue with that i do and i'll and i'll, I'll pick on that point a little bit but to be on the internet required a serious investment in, in infrastructure, right? Like it was really hard to be an early internet user. Right now, people have computers, they have all the tools that are necessary, and we're mimicking the adoption curves of internet. I don't see that actually as a positive. I genuinely see that as a negative, especially as you know, narratives like AI surpass us, and and you know, narratives like VR surpass us. And obviously, they've been around for longer, but it's it's not for a lack of tooling, right? Like, why is VR taking off when you require even more investment than crypto? I mean, I think the answer there lies in just the importance and the influence of money. I, I think, you know, this this has been obvious to me since, you know, since I start, first started getting interested in Bitcoin like 10 years ago, mm -hmm. is that this was going to take a long time because crypto fundamentally is a political um, is, a, yeah. is a political idea, uh, more so than, you know, the spread of information um, using using the internet or like the ability to, I mean, AI is fairly political, but like VR and metaverse, you know, it's just like yeah. another distraction. It's not right? a lot of so, politics there. It's entertainment. Um, it's gaming, yeah, right? It's yeah. gaming at the end of exactly. the day. Exactly. And, and I think like money and, and, and finance is highly political. And so that's why I think it's harder for crypto to, uh, like crypto has a whole lot more barriers that it has to break down, um, whether, you know, um, uh, whether ideological barriers that like yep. the, the sort of ideas that like the people hold about crypto, I think in your white paper, you said that like, hey, you, you serve people and like most people still think that crypto is a scam. Yep. Um, but you know, in the early nineties, like or in the early two thousands, a lot of people still thought the internet was stupid, right? Yeah, like there's of tons of articles that about, like people writing about how the internet was, how it'll never be die a thing. And, yeah, of exactly. There's too much information. Um, yeah, correct. So, I mean, this is like, um, this is a recurring thing, you know, I mean, it goes Definitely. back to the printing press when people thought that like, people having books was a bad idea. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that I think I, I'm, I'm pretty, I guess I'm not so um, worried about the adoption curve. Uh, obviously, it'd be better if it was if, yeah. if there was more adoption. But I think the adoption curve is like on track. Okay. I don't know. It's a good point. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah I mean, it's that, Podcast. Feel free to argue otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, listen. I I think it's we're both arguing for the same thing. I'm saying it should be faster. You're saying it should be faster, right? And I think anyone in crypto is not going to say, you know what? Actually, we're good having one like one percent of the population. I don't think anyone here wants that, right? And you know, I have I come to the the table with a set of beliefs that. You know, and I think it's funny because crypto as a whole was meant to eliminate the need for trust, yet it became very quickly one of the most untrusted industries, um, which, I mean, to me is hilarious, right? But you get something that's, you know, you're redefining ownership, right? And I, and I think it's a, a sect of the internet, naturally, right? Where you have so much information in this kind of postmodernism, like, argument of there's too much information, how do I know what's real? I think crypto thrives. You know, you've never been able to do scarcity on the internet, which is why the whole right-click save is such a meme, um, you know, but
but it's not going to be like killing the Netflixes or the Spotify's. It's going to be this kind of upgraded or, or completely new thing, which is so exciting. I agree there. Uh, so yeah, what's so what is Zion and who are yes. you building it for? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I would say that Zion takes on the the narrative of a couple things on a very base layer. And if you were to ask me directly, it is an L1 for consumer applications. Um, you know, we can get into the word of generalized abstraction, which is more technical, right? And and speaks to that more technical, um, you know, kind of audience. But when we talk about an L1 for consumer applications, right, what we really mean is the current tools right now are really tailored towards the crypto native. It's really tailored towards DeFi. It's really tailored towards finance. And, you know, this, this group that's been in here and, and this, call it an echo chamber, right, where you have these extremely high barriers to entry, both, you know, physical and kind of a knowledge barrier to entry, um, where we require people to click on the right links, download the right extensions and learn about this and, you know, wait five days, enter your social security number on Coinbase. And there's a lot of expectations, right? But, you know, it's also more incentivized by the industry to kind of be siloed in a way because, you know, a lot of protocols, a lot of protocols business model is effectively, um, you know, not rugging retail, but bringing new money in so that people can cash out, right? And that's a pyramid scheme uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. So when when you say building, uh, like you're, you're building a layer one for for consumer applications, yeah. you know, I think there's a lot of other pro protocols that would have a similar uh, mission. You know, I think Saga, say Immutable, Injective, like all of these chains, and some others. You know, were built yeah. around this idea that we need to make applications easier to use, faster, with um, better response times, like better UX around wallets. Yeah. Um, and, you know, also, also like Osmosis, I think, you know, even though it is quite DeFi oriented, is like super focused on UX and uh, improving the experience. Yeah. How is Zion different from any of those? Yeah. I mean, I'll think about the names you mentioned, right? Like Injective is a blockchain for finance. Say is a blockchain for trading. Um, you know, Saga is, um, I don't know their tagline, but I believe they're like roll up of roll ups is what I always called them or a bunch of side chains. Um, you know, but I love that we were part of the, uh, the, uh, one of the programs, I forget what it was called, um, you know, and then immutable gaming, right? And I think everyone's going to have their niche. And I think there's, this is something that we learned early on in Solana was when we were competing with DeFi products, you know, we were, there's different things that be needed for a generalist blockchain. And I think when we look at something like Cosmos, you see where this app chain slash industry chain specific narrative comes in, where when we talk about consumer applications, a lot of it is, we know, like, we don't want people to give a shit about DeFi. We want to make the next Spotify, but make it just about the music. We don't, we don't believe people should care about that. You know, and, and when you, you, you had mentioned it earlier, which is making a better UX for wallets, you know, we, we kind of go into this when we start talking about what we consider meta accounts, which is we don't really want EOAs, right? We want smart contract accounts, and we want, you know, what we call it is, you know, we enshrine our UX opinions on the protocol level. Right, which is rather than something like a four three three seven, which is kind of this social consensus layer, or you know this, this kind of social consensus, we have it on the protocol level, which allows us to do a lot of interesting aspects to it, right? Rather than kind of really fragmenting the industry and making it extremely difficult, we just make it extremely easy for someone who wants to build. Um, I, I love music, um, but so I, I'm going to keep giving music examples because you know, but like the next SoundCloud, right? And, so that they can focus on the product. Interesting. So, um, 
you know, there's a lot of different ways that we could we could uh, sort of yeah. get into this. But let's let's maybe start with generalized abstraction because this is a topic that uh, it's obviously like in your tagline and yeah. sort of everywhere. You guys wrote a paper about it, and so what what is generalized abstraction abstraction and how does that relate to Zion? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's you know not necessarily a play on words, but it's definitely kind of comes from the the idea of uh, you know account abstraction, right? And I think when we were having these conversations about abstraction, I think it was what people kind of understood as this universal, hey, let's not let let's make sure that users can use this without really needing to know everything, right? And so whether it's a concept of the tokens that you buy underlying whether it's the concept of the chain you're on, whether it's the concept of your account, of your, of your funds, you know, it should feel like a Web2 experience. And we believe that our main goal is to create a Web2 experience on every single application that's deploying on Zion. And the way that we do that is by creating this generalized abstraction layer to kind of make the separation between this product and, you know, let's say, um, like execution environment, right? Is Zion, this, I think this is where I, I need to... Yeah get a better grip. And it's hard because here. of so, how much jargon there is in the industry of like, and predisposition of what an L1 is or a layer is or a blockchain is. Um, so I, I think it's easiest to understand it as an L1, but it's a kind of collaborative L1 via the shredded interoperability. Like I, I think the main goal of it is to look like the app store, right? Whether you're on, you know, whether you're on Zion, whether you're on Injective, whether you're on Avalanche, whether you're on Optimism, it shouldn't matter, right? And I think we're getting to a place, especially when we can have a smart contract address on every single chain, we can then effectively, you know, bridge or communicate via general message passaging or however, you know, I think we, we, we cite, I think we cite Axelos, uh, Hyperlane, and IBC for how we kind of do this, but, you know, taking the, the concept of interchain accounts and then bringing that you know, everywhere via, let's say, landslide or uh, something like that. You, you kind of get this interesting aspect where, hey, the chain doesn't matter. You know, everything for us, we had a pretty big partnership with Circle, is going to be dollar denominated, right? And we kind of talk about our parameterized fee layer, which allows you to not only use USDC, but allows you to use any token you want on any chain, which makes it significantly easier for us to, you know, for us to operate on every chain. You know, and the reason we have it as kind of this own independent layer is to, you know, obviously we have the validators incentivizing security and ensuring that everything is kind of up to up to snuff, if that makes sense. Okay, so when when a user is interacting, well, I, I guess, I mean, first and foremost, Zion is a developer product, right? I mean, yes. like it is for developers to build applications. Correct. Right? So how does Zion like integrate with other chains? I mean, just... Does, does Zion sort of as a developer, am I building on Zion and then like Zion is somehow deploying or interacting with other chains or um, or is it sort of like the other way around? Like, yeah. What's the kind a, of like modular, how does that look in the modular stack? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and there's definitely a, a, a component of time in that, right? And I think to answer the grand vision and to answer what we're doing in two months is going to be very different, right? You know, we obviously are running a testnet right now. Uh, well, I guess uh, kind of just close the testnet, uh, opening up a new one soon, though. Deploying on Zion, you kind of get all these aspects of, uh, you know, generalized abstraction. We're working very closely with the Injective team to try to do that for something like Talus or Mido to be able to use a Zion account on Mido. Um, you know, and then as we, you know, as I mentioned with Landslide, it's a lot of kind of ICA, uh, a, a lot of really reliance on ICA to have these mirroring accounts on every chain. Um, you know, and so I wouldn't think about it as like 
deploy on Zion and get deployed everywhere. It's the Zion user experience is pretty chain agnostic, right? You could be, we are collaborative with Injective. We want to be collaborative with Optimism. We want to be collaborative with AVAX because I think, especially as an L1 and where we are in the industry, it doesn't it doesn't benefit anyone to be competitive. A user on Solana shouldn't like not be a user on Avalanche. You know, and I, and I think this is one of those fundamental understandings that we learned very early on, which was, you know, when we want to, we call it abstracted interoperability. And a lot of that is like, it's marketing, right? The abstracted interoperability is marketing. What we really want to say is, you know, we we want to create this environment where the products are the thing that thrive. And we want to, you know, kind of, not hide, but, but in the back end, you know, when I say people don't give a shit about crypto, you know, the the process of moving to another chain, swapping your funds, getting a new de- denominated token that's also extremely volatile, you know, if we really want to get retail on board, they're not going to do that, right? Like, it's still it's still ridiculous as it is today to kind of, oh, here's a new L1, let me bring it over to scroll and do X, Y, and Z, and then I'll have to go bridge that over to optimism and, and change that to optimism. Like, it's just, it's terrible. And so when we talk about it, it's it's pretty umbrella of a term and you know i think there's going to be a lot of writing and a lot of kind of conversations that come out of it but i do think that we are stunted by the traditional definitions of an l1 i was thinking about this in, in the context of different uh application environments whether you know so like this could work on for for like applications on ethereum or some other generalized like smart contract platform yeah. could also work with applications built as rollups yes and and, and applications built as app chains in the context of app chains, though, um, so let's say like Osmosis or, or DYDX, right? Like they have a high level of sovereignty, and I think like they are building an application that um, has a high degree of like vertical integration and want to keep their users like on their application. And you know, in the case of Osmosis, they're building also like account abstraction to make it easier for people to onboard, etc. Mm-hmm. So you know, is there is there a benefit for applications like those? that have such high control over the entire stack that can build things like generalized sort of like account abstraction and fee grants and things of that nature like built into their chain is there an advantage for them to use zion as well yeah i mean we're not i mean we're not taking over their chain right and i think that's why we call it you know this kind of abstraction layer right and why we're going to be collaborative with every chain is because now rather than saying oh i have 10 10 users on this chain 10 users on this chain you know and, and on on 10 different chains you make that all collaborative. Now you have a hundred universal users on ten different, on like ten different products, right? And so it's, it's a rising tides will bring all boats, you know, will bring all boats up approach rather than, you know, and, and that's I think a big issue that we kind of have, which is, you know, this it's we're competitive, right? Like the the, the crypto industry, especially the L1 industry, is extremely cutthroat and it's competitive. A user on DYDX is siloed, like. Uh, they don't want to go to osmosis like dydx wouldn't want you to go to osmosis maybe they would i I could i don't want to put words in their mouth but it would be much better if we had everyone just being able to use the products as they're they're kind of designed for and like we're not trying to take over their stack we're just trying to create this layer kind of on top that allows for everything to be connected so the the, um, to to add to that the the transactions and everything would still happen on their chain but they would be of course mimicked on the Zion chain Okay, so let's talk about some of the different components of this generalized abstraction. So, you know, there's uh, there's the meta counts, there's a signature abstraction, you have this parameterized fee layer and this abstracted interoperability. Um, you know, these are all kind of 
very abstract uh, terms, I think. So let's maybe talk about one uh, each individually, um, starting with maybe the most obvious, which is the meta accounts, or I guess you could sort of equate them to some kind of account abstraction. Um, how does that work? Yeah, loaded question. Um, but yeah, so I, I think when we talk about meta accounts, there's history behind that kind of connotation to it, right? Which is, I think you get this kind of idea of account abstraction in 4337, which is, hey, let's make an easier wallet, right? Like, let's make, let's make this wallet with these bundlers, right, et cetera. When we have it on the protocol level, right, and we have everything that we've kind of been working on, meta accounts is, is more of an application of what we've built, right? And so when we say, since we're, you know, since everything's a smart contract to cut on the protocol, we get the ability to sign in with really whatever you want, right? There's no private public key anymore. And I think that that concept is what I'm going to harp on a lot when I talk about a meta account, right? So since we don't have a private public key anymore, right, we just, we effectively just have a public key that needs to be authenticated. We can use any authentication method we want, which means that we can use, you know, a Solana wallet, we can use an Ethereum wallet, we can use a Kepler, we can use Face ID, we can use single sign-on, uh, Gmail, socials, whatever. Any public, you know, any, any encryption works, right? And so that's kind of one of these things. And I think we talk about mobile as well, right? And, and a lot of decisions in crypto are based on these legacy decisions that have been created for us, right? The reason a, a, a wallet exists is because you needed some place to store the private key, right? And you're not going to just store it in the browser. You need someone to store it for you, right? So then comes MetaMask. And then comes this entire protocol design around this concept of wallets, which inherently is clunky. You know, you lose a mnemonic, you're done, right? You're compromised once, you're done. You don't really get this security aspect. You don't, you know, and, and there's a lot, you know, I, I of course don't really have to kind of say too much on that, but the ability to then have everything as a meta account and have just complete public key encryption, right, is it allows for us to do a lot of insane things, right? And as I kind of mentioned with one of those things kind of being what looks like account abstraction, but being able to do key rotation, really getting into the advanced nitty gritty of being able to do like even weighted or, or being able to, and I, I think the way that we're working on it with abstraction 2.0 is using Aussie. Um, to provide kind of security grants, right? So you have this kind of, you know, you, you have this meta account and then say, I want to go to use this application. I can give an Aussie grant to then spend only up to $50 on the accounts that on the contracts that are permissioned. And you get this new layer of security that kind of also works with that. And, and you know, you've obviously been around in the Cosmos space a lot and you've heard Aussie being kind of mentioned in this connotation. And I think, you know, there's very few podcasts where I can kind of go into the nitty gritty on why we're excited about what we call abstraction 2.0 to NPM library. But, you know, a lot of that kind of comes over to this Auth-Z thing that we've done to be able to have these sub-accounts per each application that you're on that link to the meta account and have this security permission. But at the end of the day, it just feels like you're, you're dealing with products. Um, mm. yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously, like, Auth-Z works when you're dealing with Cosmos chains. It's, you know, when, when you get into, you know, Solana or Ethereum or yeah. any other sort of... And a lot of that like differs, yeah. right? Like we, we, again, we cite Hyperlane. You know, I think there's going to be different methods that we do. I think for us, we're not, you know, obviously right now we're Cosmos, right? And IBC and ICA is already there and it's so incredible. And it's honestly, it's frankly underused. That should have been my hot take because I genuinely think that it's, 
the killer thing of Cosmos um, that is just terrifically underused uh, or underutilized or under-talked about. But, um, yeah. What, one thing I, I wanted to ask you is with this, with this um, abstraction 2.0, if we don't need a place to store the private key anymore, i.e. a wallet, and you know, we, can, we can construct these you know, uh, kind of multi-factor authentication, um, perhaps also, and this is something that Osmosis wants to do, right? It's like having thresholds. So if you're sending like under a certain amount, you can sign in with your Gmail, but if you're sending more, you're gonna have to have a second factor, perhaps of a pass key or something like that. Um, at this, when you get it to this level of account abstraction and the private key no longer exists, do we need a wallet anymore? Like, can, can we no, just like no. log it in the browser and have everything just happen? So that's in the why browser? that's where you get into Odyssey. And so this is actually funny because we we realized this with with abstraction 1.0, needing abstraction 2.0. On Osmosis, that works when you're Osmosis and you know that you're not going to be a malicious application. When you're building out an ecosystem and you effectively give free reign to someone because you don't need a wallet anymore, that can get really bad really really quickly. Right. And so when we talk about this kind of security threshold of odd Z, yes, there's like this multi-factor authentication of, um, you know, of like osmosis, but it's still osmosis. Right. What's interesting kind of about that, right, is when you say that there's no wallet, what you need to understand is that there's no real signing anymore. Right. Is because now it's like Signal, right? Where you log into Signal, you verify your session, and then you could send a bunch of messages as you want. Right. Since there's no private key, you don't really need to sign anything anymore, um, which is both really cool, but also pretty scary if it's in the wrong hands. And so when you talk about these, these kind of grants, right, it's, <laughs> yes, we want, to, we want to ensure that this session is valid. We want to ensure that you can only get up to this much, interact with these contracts that are, you know, maybe government, governance approved, um, you know, but a lot of that does come into, you know, yes, our aspect of still wanting to bring retail on, but understanding that we still need to be trustless and decentralized okay i hadn't considered that yeah ba basically if you give access to the browser or like some application in the browser that application once it has access it can just like whatever it wants do whatever it wants yep. and uh, yeah okay um and, or, or potentially even like you could have some exploit that yeah. is like oh, you fishing know, has 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 control over your dom and would be able to then like um make exactly. transactions on your behalf and so, so, so in this case, that's where AuthZ comes uh, into play. Is that AuthZ sits between the user and the application, and so you can set all these parameters within AuthZ. Yep, it's like a subaccount, um, and it's you're not okay. connected to the entire, you know, entire thing, right? If you're on a social media or a social network, right, there's no reason for you to be sending fifty thousand dollars to a to a wallet address. You know, the the approvals you're going to give are going to be like a post, comment on something. Like, don't expose your entire wallet balance. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, I think one of the challenges here with with this kind of, I mean, with, with any sort of new account system is that uh, legacy accounts are, are diffi difficult to onboard. So, like, I, I use a ledger. Uh, you know, I'd love to move all of my DeFi positions onto something that's easier to use and yet secure, but... So, kind of. I mean, there's... There's also what we want and what we don't want, right? I'm not promoting anyone to get off of their ledger. Like, that's not what we want. I think I'm still keeping a ledger, right? Yeah, but, like, think about, like, a long-term vision, right? Like, I mean, if, if, if you're, like, 10 years from now, like, we have account abstraction yeah. that is 
you know, well constructed enough where you can have hardware, you can you can have hardware that's maybe like in a phone or something like that that's that's also securing the device, yeah. and maybe like multiple factor layers of uh, multi-factor authentication for different types of you know, and then like you want to onboard folks that already have yes, you know, sort of like very complex portfolios that are on EOAs. What's the path to taking those and migrating them yeah. to uh, something like this? So there's there's two kind of things to that. One of them. We have, we're really bad um, because we just do way too many fucking puns at this company where we have like, I don't know if you've seen Abstraction, which is the, the NPM library, but it's abstraction spelled Zion at the end, right? And then you realize that anything that ends in like O-N or I-O-N can then just be E-owned or whatever. Um, we have what we call Succession or whatever. It's annoying. I know. Don't blame me. Blame Ash. But um, uh, what we still need require, you know, there's going to be times where you still require off-chain signing, Right. And, you know, a lot of this kind of comes into play, which is like, hey, I exist. I am this wallet, right? And as I had mentioned, right, since it's a public key, we can use any encryption method, right? Which means I can still sign with, a, with my MetaMask. I can still sign with, you know, a YubiKey or something like that, right? And being able to kind of transfer that, it's still bridge, right? And, and I think that's the difficulty in what we're kind of building is, yes, we're building for the web two, but we're also building for the web three, because at the end of the day, that's where everything starts, right? You, you can't, Rome wasn't built in a day. And, you know, being able to, I mean, being able to transfer is very easy. It's just a bridge, right? I mean, I'll call George from Axelar right now and be like, you know, but it's, it's, it's being able to then bring that into this kind of secure method in a way that both resonates with web two and web three, right? And so when I say I don't want anyone to move off of a of a hardware wallet, I'm still very a huge proponent of not your keys, not your wallet, right? And I want to create an environment, I think the whole team does, wants to create an environment where, you know, if you don't want, if you still want to operate with your Ethereum, right, if you still want to operate with your Solana, you can, right? Like, we're not saying you can't. You know, I, I think a lot of that kind of needs to be, you know, and, and a lot of that is like very, it's design, right, which is having advanced settings, right? Maybe maybe not necessarily saying this is the correct approach, but saying, hey, we think you should use your email. Do you have a, a, a Kepler? Sure, here you go, right? Um, so, and I think that's really important about being this kind of environment that we want to create is it's not just for Web2, it's, it's this nice bridge in a way. So that, let's let's talk a little bit about signature abstraction okay. and how that relates to... This is perfect, yeah. Yeah, account abstraction. Yeah, right. So, you know, as, as we kind of mentioned, right, we don't, we don't, doesn't, the signatures don't matter, right, anymore. We don't need, we don't need a signature. Uh, you know, we don't need to sign transactions. We do need to validate a session, right, but that means we can use any encryption curve that we want, right, whether that's, you know, we can, and then combine them together, right? And then you think you look at, like, what multi-factor authentication will look like on this, it's, We'd love for people to use their email to create an account, but then back it up with a MetaMask, right? Or join join Zion with their MetaMask and then use their email for account recovery, right? Do they want to switch out a key? Great, here's another one. We can have key rotation on that. That key can be, you cannot, like, and we're going to have, right, and then that goes the other way around, right, which is being able to use those keys to then sign transactions on other accounts um, or to mimic the transactions on other accounts. Um, you know, and, and I think what we talk about with signature abstraction, it, it's a cute marketing word, right? But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, most of these things are, right? It's, it's signature abstraction. It's, a, it's device abstraction. But the only thing that really, you know, at the end of the day, this commonality between all of them is that people don't give a shit. People shouldn't have to know what 
what signature curve they're using, right? Or understand what, why, you know, K1 versus R1 curve, right? They think we're at a point of encryption where, A, people don't even know, right? But also, we need to be, we need to ensure that we're future-proofing for the next generation of encryption services that kind of come out there, right? And so as we talk about, you know, the R1 or K1 curve, that could be obsolete in 15 years, right? And to be able to run an entire, you know, to run an entire network off of something that could be obsolete, you know, we need a way to then kind of prevent that and effectively future-proof ourselves for, you know, maybe another chain comes live that uses a completely different signature curve or some other method of encryption. We need to be ready for that. Okay, so, so if I summarize here, um, like an application that uh, leverages like Zion extraction, like a, a user would send a message to Zion to do some action. And then Zion has the ability to sign on any sort of, with any sort of curve. Yep. That's that's sort of the way I understand it. Like, so basically you can like sign with um, the ECDSA Well, Zion's curve not or... signing technically, but you're, you can sign with any curve to Zion. Okay, I see. Right. Okay. And then, and then Zion passes on that signature to there you go. the, to the chain. Okay. Got it. And, um, how does this relate, how does this relate to like passkey technology? Yeah. That's what we're really excited about, right? Because we can use Apple secure enclave now, right? Which means that you can log in with your face ID. You can log in with your touch ID on Mac, right? Or your Google ID or, or something like that. And utilizing Apple or Google secure enclave, you know, these extremely cool, um, you know. And so when we talk about passkey, we just want to make this as Web two as possible, right? Like imagine logging into your account just with your Face ID, and you don't have to sign anything because you've already authenticated your session, right? And you know, at the end of the day, right, we keep reverting back to this idea that we want to, like, we work so freaking hard just to mimic Web two, right? And to provide applications that can mimic at Web two, so that you don't, you know, I, I think Immutable even quoted this of like, there's a ninety five percent fall off rate when users are prompted with a wallet, right? And let alone just even getting past that, right? And so being able to provide companies, you know, products, people, the opportunity to build products that don't provide a 95% fall off rate is, is really what everything here is for. Do, do you think that as we move towards, as, as people move towards leveraging passkey to manage their entire digital security, th does that give Apple too much power to Apple and Google? And one yes. of the ways that we can, as users, say, like retain sovereignty over I mean, I guess like they can't. Well, I, think, I, I guess they don't have access to the keys because they're encrypted in the device. But but they do have like the ability to censor, I suppose. We also don't want your passkey to be your only means of authentication, because yeah, I mean, I guess this is more like a general question it. about the use of passkey for, you know, securing Everything. one's like vault yeah. of passwords. You know. I mean, that's why Bitcoin used the you know the K one curve versus the R one curve, right? Which is the, the, the kind of fear that, A, it's already been encrypted, right? But this kind of fear of power, right? And that, that's where all of this kind of comes from. So on a general basis, yeah, I absolutely agree with you, right? But, you know, I, I think on, on two kind of points to that, number one being this kind of concept of key rotation, which is, 
you know, this consideration of like multi-party computation is, is kind of interesting, um, you know, but being able to not have this kind of single point of failure, a single point of exposure is number one, really, really important to us. Um, but then also, I, I think it's like, the, you know, you're always going to find this trade-off of adoption versus, hey, does Apple too, have too much power, right? Or does Google have too much power? Because when we talk about us, and I know us, right? Like, we're very specific of, like, yeah, Apple has too much power. Um, it's what crypto's here for. But if we want to genuinely bring over the world, there's going to be some trade-offs in security for, for the people who, maybe they don't care about security, right? But, you know, being able to then provide them, like, a multi-party or, like, a multiple key rotation uh, system where they don't need to care is kind of what we approach, if that makes sense. It's the old yeah. bait and switch, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so what's the what's this parameterized fee layer, and uh, how can applications utilize that to um, abstract away fees? So, I mean, parameterized fee layer. We we kind of go into this in in a couple ways, and I and I think you nailed it as well, right? Which is number one, people shouldn't ever. I don't think an end user should ever see a gas fee in their life. I don't think it's conducive, and especially when you have to buy like a native token. I think that is a huge barrier of entry for number one products, but number two kind of L1s. And so we understand that there's an insane amount of friction that comes with gas. And so for us, that part was originally called gas abstraction, if you could follow the, the pattern there. But uh, you know, as it kind of relates to the parameterized fee layer, there's definitely more to it. And you know, we work with, uh, you know, fee abstraction is, is an interesting part of that, which is there's two types of transactions that we kind of imagine. The first one is, paid transactions, right? Which is I'm sending, you know, I'm buying something for a hundred dollars and everything is denominated ideally in dollars, right? I'm giving a hundred dollars also since it's denominated in dollars that allows us to have credit card purchasing directly for those assets, right? Cause you don't have to do this weird rigmarole of, of swapping, right? So buying USDC with that assets, uh, buying credit card, using credit card, buying USDC, buying the asset with, with the credit card, you know, and then say, hey, here's, you know, 99.99 goes to the person who sold it, and then the point one then goes to the fee collector, right? And this is one of those things that we built, right? And so that, that those USDC fees then get swapped to the Zion token so that they can be obviously counted against inflation. The second is what you've probably seen more, which is this kind of concept of fee sponsoring, which isn't as sexy. It's not as cool, but this is more for like the platform sends, et cetera, things that are that don't really have a monetary value to it, but still need to kind of go across the finish line. Um, but a lot of the fee layer kind of comes along, you know, and we use, uh, you know, we work very closely with Osmosis for the fee abstraction kind of on that end. And, you know, there's a little bit of part of it about like how we calculate the TWAP to be able to pay the 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 gas collector or the fee collector to then combat inflation but at the end of the day the whole reason that that exists is so you know starting with usdc but then whether that be zion whether it converts to zion whether it con converts to solana and, and does a transaction over there it, it creates this kind of it creates a separation this abstraction layer yeah uh um <laughs> between this kind of the the product the user and then you know what I call the people who need to be fed, right? Which are the validators, which is getting the, the transaction across the finish line and making sure that everything is accounted for. Is this complementary to so, using skip lanes um, for fee abstraction? Um, the, I, think, I think we SDK? work with the same... I believe so. I'm, you know, unfortunately, I, I'm not 
as familiar with a skip lane. Can you give me a, a quick rundown? Yeah, so basically, you. like, skip has this block SDK, and the block SDK allows you to construct your block, and they have this whole concept of lanes, where essentially you could say, okay, like, the, you know, the first 10% of the block or whatever is reserved for new addresses that have just, like, basically, it's like their first transaction, and these transactions are going to be free, or, I don't know, maybe, like, mm -hmm. governance transactions are free, and you can sort of construct your block in this way, and enforce uh, certain parts of the block for certain types of uh, transactions, and you know, like new new users using the protocol for the first time is like one of those use cases, I suppose. My knowledge of that was that it was mainly for MEV protection. Is that it, a correct understanding? It, it is for MEV protection, but there's also like you can also use it for this kind of use case, right? Where like a user that just received, say, like. Adam on their Osmo account as like a brand new address uh, and they they don't have any Osmo to pay for fees, you could say, okay, this is a new address. We're going to give them like their first five transactions for free or something like that. Like a fee grant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you're, yeah. you're saying like a fee grant for new addresses, right? Yeah, or certain types of, a, certain types of transactions could be free yeah. and you would have those like sort of in a, in a specific lane. Got it. Um, I mean, I could see it being similar. I know we've had very similar conversations, uh, you know, and I like, uh, you know, Magma from, from Skip and I love those guys. But, um, you know, I think I, I think we're solving probably similar things when it comes to that, because, you know, you're right. It's, it's a huge pain for a new user. And especially it's funny on Cosmos, uh, an account doesn't get activated unless it has money in its in its wallet. Right. And so this was a big problem we ran into probably like a year ago in testing. Um, before everything really kind of came to fruition, which was, it's like, oh my God, we have these people signing up, but they need to claim funds. We need to send them funds so that they can do a free action, right? And it's definitely an interesting concept. Um, you know, and I think one lanes is, is an interesting way of kind of approaching it. And I think it's very MEV specific. Um, but I do think that aspects like that kind of solve similar functions, which is, you know, I think Near did it as well, which was like every new wallet got like $5 in Near, and it was to make that first transaction because that's the worst thing for a new wallet is, A, it's not activated, I can't do anything, even if it's free, um, but then B, I have to then, you know, the process of doing that is, is really tough. And so, you know, that's why I say it's it's probably on the other end of the transaction where it's not before TX, it's on after TX. I think we're solving the same things. The, the problems in crypto arise in in very similar formats. And, you know, the Skip team has always been extremely, extremely bright and extremely intelligent. And I think it, it's, it's easy to understand these kind of problems and to be able to solve it, especially, you know, and then what I was saying about kind of the Skip Lane specific part was it was very, very tailored to this MEV protection. Um, you know, and I, and I think for us, a lot of it is more encompassing of you know, we talked about this a little bit, but it's like, hey, we don't think the mint module works very well in the way that it is. Um, and then, you know, we think that fees should offset inflation as well. Uh, and then also we think that people aren't going to be using the Zion token to be doing transactions. Like, I don't, I don't imagine a world where a lot of people are using Zion to make transactions. Like, I want Zion to be in the back end really, really badly, right? Like, I would rather you hold... Solana and USDC in your wallet, and then you can use that, and then it would be converted to to Zion, right? So when I say we're solving it from different ends, right, like the before TX and after TX, like th that's more what's going on in my mind, which is like don't think about it. Like we're solving the same thing from from a different endpoint and for different purposes. So yeah, let's talk about the the Mint module. Um, you you've, you guys have written about yeah. this on your blog quite a bit, and like in the context of 
um, offsetting inflation and um, sort of having a maintaining good ratio of staked to liquid staked tokens. Can, can you expand on this research and your thinking about what is the right way forward for Zion? Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is all, you know, I'd love to, love to call this part like Montes' uh, kind of brainchild as it comes to it. But something that he brought up and something that we really noticed very quickly was that there is an immense amount of hyperinflation, right? And you look into this and it's like, well, why? Right? And APYs are, in, you know, APYs are fine, but like, why is the inflation so high? You know, when you look at the, the kind of the calculations behind it and you're saying, okay, we're doing the calculations for all tokens in existence and then distributing that towards people who are staking, right? Why don't we just provide the same APY and to everyone that's staking? Like, wouldn't that theoretically make more sense? Wouldn't that be more sustainable? And wouldn't, like, it was funny because you, you always have these moments, especially in this industry, which is like, why the fuck did they decide to do it this way? Like, why is this the standard? You know, and, and I think it was, it was, you know, obviously kind of Montes taking a step back and hitting this first principles approach of saying, dude, I think this is fucking stupid. Um, you know, and so we we wrote the mint module and a lot of parts of it to, you know, to distribute staking for your APY for stake tokens, right? And what this inherently means is like, especially in the first couple of like twelve months, I think we can promise a fifteen percent inflation and then hit like a less than one percent. Oh, sorry, fifteen percent APY and hit less than a one percent inflation, right? It starts kind of it, if you have everything staked and you have everything unlocked, then it starts to look the same, right? Because if if all the tokens are staked, then it's then you know APY equals stake tokens in in kind of any capacity. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. How does that work practically then? So can you give some examples of what um, what the inflation would be like given certain amount of stake, um, and what's the optimal kind of ratio there? Yeah, I mean, I think you always, you know, I think you always have this kind of optimal ratio of like, you know, ideally you have 40 to 50%. I, I think it's kind of what we normally see. Obviously, you want as much staked as possible, right? Like, that's definitely incentivizing to be as, as staked as possible. Um, you know, what was, sorry, I, 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 what was the first part of your question? Yeah, I mean, what's the, um, can you give some examples there of like what that would look like in, in production? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can look, I mean, I can give you an example of what it won't look like. Um, but it would be like, like the user wouldn't really know you're effectively getting what you're promised. Um, and the chain isn't suffering from it, right? Like say you were to stake, you know, you know, say you were to stake, you're getting 50% APY no matter what on what you're staked, right? It doesn't matter. What matters is you look at the entire piece of the pie and we're only effectively individually, you know, giving that 15% to everyone that stakes, right? Not not this kind of weird other way around, which is, oh, okay, this is theoretically what the staking rewards would be if everyone staked, but let's take that, like, let's take this, ac you, you have these two layers, right? Like, if you would imagine, if you would imagine, like, this being the amount of tokens that are kind of minted because of the APY, but then this is the amount of tokens that are staked, you have this, like, l thick, thick layer of fat that's like, why do, A, why are we inflating? this if we don't need to if the stakers are all getting rewarded why we have this thick layer of fat and what do we do with it we just give it to the other stakers right and so you get the same you know you effectively get the same 15 percent apy but everyone gets hurt in the end um you know and, and i think you looked at this like i think at some point it didn't really matter like when you had like 100 percent of tokens being staked the math is the exact same as 
doing the way that we're doing. But I think to give you the example, right, like you saw some pretty, you know, intense inflation rates and pretty like like average APYs, right? And it was, you know, you look at some of this and you look and you say, oh, wow, that's that's just not sustainable. Right. And I think there's an incentive to stake. And, you know, we need to provide security to the network and we need to provide the incentive to stake. But also, why are we why are we sinking the ship in the meantime? Right. Like how short term vision are we looking here where, you know, this is this is getting out of control. I mean, so so you know, if, if I come back to sort of the crux of the issue here, the issue is that say we have a 15 percent uh APY on staking. So you stake your tokens, you get 15% mm -hmm. APY on, on those tokens. But there's a 4% uh, uh, inflation rate, right? So like the effective, the effective APY that you're getting is, is not 15, it's, it's 11, yes. right? because there's an inflation rate of four. Yes. And so what you're saying is that uh, rather than spreading that inflation um, as if all tokens were staked, that the inflation Correct. is effectively proportional to the amount of tokens that are actually being staked. That is exactly correct. Okay, got it. Okay. And so then I mean in in that in that context then like wouldn't the incentive just be for everyone to stake and just get liquid stake tokens and then we would just be sort yeah. of back at, at the same like you're just back well, in the I mean, same and I, situation. and I think you you're probably back in the same situation realistically. Like I do think that happens over a. I think that happens over time, and there's never going to be a hundred percent of the tokens that are in circulation, just ever, right? And it's more of this fact of like, hey, why are we doing more? Like, why are we doing extra than we need to, right? Why don't we just do the amount that's correct instead of having this layer of fat? So, you know, I, I think we can talk in hypothetical of like, oh, let's imagine one hundred percent of people are staking, but. I think you and I both like look at other projects, right? You look around the industry and you never have a hundred percent staked, right? You're when it's just it's it's illogical to kind of assume that. And I think, um, you know, I, 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 we see a lot of the times it's around forty to fifty percent is staked, um, you know. And I think there's you know there's going to be kind of some that's staked. There's going to be some that's probably used, um, you know. But normally, I believe what we see, like I think Celeste, I think Injective sees like 40 to 50 percent and i think that's where a lot of these like our assumptions are based off of um because you really rarely see close to 100 percent staking staked but yeah of course that's uh but i was just thinking unless in, and in, like in you know, and i and i think like another thing that also kind of screws projects over that we're trying to avoid is like you know letting the community do the staking why is it you know why is it the treasury shouldn't be staking if it's not unlocked, right? Like you shouldn't be having the treasury making money when the community's getting screwed over, right? Like it should be for securing the tokens that are available to the market. And I think that's where this calculation also makes an assumption, which is saying, um, you know, we're, we're going to be very true to the community, especially, in, you know, especially while we're getting the bootstrap to the network and everything's getting started. It's like the people who will be earning are going to be the people who are securing the network. It's not going to be this like kind of free for all per se, which we've seen yeah. time and time before. So let, let's talk about the stack a little bit. So you, you guys are leveraging the, the Cosmos stack. Like, why mm -hmm. uh, did you choose to use Cosmos? And, you know, since you're coming from Solana, I guess uh, I'd like to know why not build this on as a Solana roll up or like build this with the Solana stack or, or any other stack. Like, why, why leverage Cosmos? There's a few reasons. Number one, the time that we made this decision, right? Arbitrum optimism wasn't really, wasn't really a thing. Like, 
2022, yeah, they were coming out. Yeah, they were fine. They weren't really a thing. Uh, neither was the Solana roll-up. That wasn't really even an option. Um, uh, I think that the only ones that we could really make our own chain was, like, Polkadot. And Parody was an investor to us, right? And I, I love the team a lot. But um, it was Cosmos and it was, um, you know, Polkadot and, or it was uh, Polygon for our own chain. And, you know, number one, there was always a, the, the question of, like, hey, why don't we just try to do this somewhere else? And the answer to that is, like, grass is legitimately never greener on the other side. Um, you know, and I think we had a lot of scar tissues from what we'd built, and, and um, you know, I love the Solana community to death, but, you know, when you're competing in a generalized environment and, like, the decisions are being made for, you know, DeFi or, or what's hot, right, then you start to get these kind of scar tissue that formed, which is, like, we're making this for the specific purpose so that we don't have to compete, right? Um, subnets were still iffy, right? Like, this was even before, like, Krobata went to a subnet, and they realized, hey, this isn't as sustainable as we, we think, and made some really awesome changes to it. Um, I think Cosmos was, like, I, I always say Cosmos is the end game of, like, crypto. Like, I think Cosmos got the end game right, and I think I saw a tweet the other day that said it, too, but it's, like, if you took ETH and you took Cosmos, you're, we're all effectively solving the same thing, but Cosmos solved the end game first and then went the other way. ETH started off with, like, started off with ETH and then roll up all the way to what Cosmos will effectively become. Um, you know, and so you got things like IBC, ICA. Um, also, we work out of the injective office, so it's always been helpful to, uh, you know, to kind of have them, uh, you know, as a, they're kind of my, my longtime friends. Um, additionally, a lot of the team came from Cosmos, just kind of happenstance. I think you get the independence of Cosmos to be as part of the community or as not part of the community as you want, and it's up to you, right? You can work with people, you cannot work with people. Um, Obviously, it benefits everyone to work with people, but, um, you know, I, I think you have such an interesting community of, like, people who don't need to be there, like, like that you see with other generalized L1s, but the people want to be there. And I think that's a very key difference that is only really seen in the Cosmos community. Yeah, that's that's an interesting take. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree on, on a lot of those points. I think that this idea that you can use the Cosmos stack and you know, decide to work with people or associate with the brand as much as you want or not, you know, in, in the case of chains like DYDX, for instance, or uh, or Say, right? Like so they've sort of squarely gone in the direction of like, we, they want to build their own thing and not necessarily associate with the brand, but leverage the stack. And then other chains are going to be like super aligned with the branding and super aligned with the kind, kind of like Cosmos ecosystem. And, you know, I've talked about this many times on the podcast, but I see it as sort of similar to, to Linux in that perspective where, you know, all the devices that we use on a daily basis Pretty much all use Linux uh, um, as a the Linux kernel, but none of them associate with the brand. Meanwhile, there's like tons of operating systems that do, tons. right? And so, um, and so that's the beauty of of like building this sort of end game thing first, and then kind of going back and and uh, having people build cool stuff with it. Um, so yeah, very very cool. And so before we wrap up here, what's the current state of the project? And uh, you mentioned earlier there was a testnet going on. When's the mainnet? When's the TGE? Yep. When airdrop, yes. uh, all the stuff people want to learn about. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, so we, we finished our last testnet. Uh, last testnet ended with 450,000 wallets. I think it was like 4 million transactions. Um, and we have been upgrading a, a later part of December to the generalized abstraction testnet, which was when we released the white paper, uh, which will then have everything that we're talking about with like abstraction 2.0. That we, I think we just made an announcement of one of the projects kind of coming today, but that testnet will be opening up very, very soon, um, you know, and I think, you know, really once we're done there, once we're done there, once we break everything that we need to break and make sure everything's kind of done, then, then, uh, 
Yeah, and I'll see you on main night, right? And, um, you know, dates are always hard in this industry, as you probably know. But, you know, I, I definitely this year, I mean, not not to give, I know that's not too specific, but, you know, if hopefully this test net goes, you know, hopefully we don't have to make any changes this test net. We can hop in, you know, tomorrow. But, you know, uh, main net's coming right after test net, and we're really excited for that. Great. Well, Anthony, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today and enlightening me about Zion and um, and this. Did I help? Uh, Is there anything that would have made it clearer earlier on? By the way, that's that's a question for you. No, I think it's pretty clear. I guess I guess like for me, it it almost it always becomes clearer when I see sort of tangible uh, examples of yeah, applications of and and chains that are using this tech and so like where it sits in the stack and you know, how they integrate with it and then what are the applications that sort of come out of that. Uh, but that will come with time uh, as, uh, as you yeah. guys roll out. Um, yeah, thanks again. And we'll, uh, we'll catch you very soon. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. Appreciate it.